0: Uh, Let's go ahead and open our Bibles now to Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14. I'll be honest with you, for some reason, this chapter has been really challenging for me. Uh, The book of Revelation is a challenge because there are so many different ways to... There's a handful of ways, honestly, that people uh, throughout history have viewed this book. And I believe the way we're going through it right now uh, makes sense. Uh, We know that it is a... These events that we're speaking of are yet future to us. We know that we still live in the church age because we're all here, right? But once the church is removed, the church age is over. And we are in heaven with Jesus. And we'll be there for seven years while what we call the Great Tribulation, what the Bible calls the Great Tribulation, it calls Jacob's trouble, it calls it Daniel's 70th week. It's a period of seven years where God is going to deal again with Israel and her unbelief, and he's also going to pour out his judgment on a world that has rejected his only means of salvation, and that is Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's only through Jesus that we can be saved, and so God is going to pour out his wrath On a world that has rejected his son. But understand this, that even during that time, and and I I labeled this morning's um, message, the persistent love of God. Because when we get into verse six, really, there, there's just this wonderful opportunity that the people on the earth are going to have during this time, throughout the whole seven year period. Actually, they're going to be able to come to Christ. They won't be a part of the church per se, because the church is a unique body that uh, that that believes in Him before the the rapture of the church. Okay, but it doesn't mean. That those people who give their heart to Christ during the tribulation, it doesn't mean that they're not going to heaven. They are, but you understand there is the church and then there are people who give their heart to Christ in the the tribulation. But it's a different group of people. Does that make sense? They're still going to go to the same place, but it's going to cost them a great deal. And it's going to be extremely, extremely difficult in those days yet future to us after the church is removed. There's going to be such a great delusion and a great deception going on. If you think there's deception and delusion going on right now, we've seen nothing yet. It's going to get much, much worse. And there is going to be great delusions, great deceptions. And don't think that you're strong enough to withstand those delusions and deceptions. How, far, how much better is it now to give your heart to Christ while things are relatively easy? Now, I would say that the time we're living in right now is not necessarily easy, but it's relative compared to what's coming. Because what's coming, if we could fast forward to that time that we're referring to now, every one of us and anyone who is not saved would probably drop to their knees and beg for forgiveness. I'm convinced of it. A great majority of people will give their heart if they understood what's coming. But see, they live in unbelief. They don't believe what the Word of God says. And that's why you and I have such a great privilege to have the word of God. And to know that God loved us so much that not only did he give his son as a propitiation, a substitute for us, whereas we deserve death for eternity, he went to the cross, suffered that eternal death, and also redeemed us. And now he is seated at the right hand of the Father, and those who believe in him will also be in glory with him because of what he has done on the cross. As we look at chapter 14, we're going to see that it's going to be a somewhat of a table of contents, if you will, starting at the beginning of the seven years and ending at the end of the seven-year tribulation period. So chapter 14 is like a table of contents of what's coming through chapters 15 through 19, because 19 is where Jesus comes back to the earth with the saints, with all of you and I, with all of us together coming back physically to the earth, to a Jerusalem that is in the Middle East right now. We visit it. We're coming back to that Jerusalem, and we'll be here for a thousand years. And then after that thousand years has expired, the Bible says, there's a lot of things, details, but a new heavens and a new earth will be created. This one will be dissolved. All the Planets, everything in the heavens will dissolve like fervent heat, with fervent heat, like a scroll that's being rolled up, and God will create a new heavens, a new earth, and a new Jerusalem, which is much larger than anything you can possibly imagine. The dimensions are given to us in Revelation, and it is huge. As large as the United States, and I think even bigger, Okay, so this is how big this city is. And the redeemed, the eternal state of every believer, that will be their home for eternity. Just as the, the wicked and those who have died and have gone to hell, those wicked dead will be spending an eternity in the lake of fire, which is an eternity. As they are going to spend an eternity there, we will spend an eternity in the new Jerusalem, and we will be there forever and ever. I don't know about you, but that's really good news. Especially now. I'm looking forward to that more than ever. There's nothing. Is there anything in your life that is holding you to this earth? That, 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 is there anything in your life that says, you know what? I don't want the rapture to come now. <laughs> I don't want the rapture to come. I want to live my life. I want to get that job. I want to marry that beautiful guy or beautiful girl. I mean, you know, provide, you know what I mean by that. You know. You want to go you want to have kids. You want to see you want to walk your daughter down the aisle, guys. You want to see your daughter with the, the veil coming off and, you know, her husband, you know, kissing her and having a family and then having grandkids and then moving to Florida and playing golf. You know, we all have those things, but you know what? And those things are fine and good. There's nothing wrong with that. God is not upset with that at all. But we must understand that that pales in comparison. And I think the more we understand who God is and what he has planned for us, the more we delve into those things and meditate on those things, it's going to make everything here seem like, you know what, Lord, this is really nice, but I can't wait. I can't wait to see you. I can't wait to be with you. There's nothing more exciting, more glorious than to be with Jesus. And to be with Jesus where he is, and the place that he has prepared for us. Let me tell you, its I can't imagine the beauty and the glory and the sense of contentedness, the sense of peace, the sense of purity, the sense of holiness, the sense of love, and it's all mingled together. I mean, uh, let yourself get carried away with that. Let yourself get carried away. So chapter 14 is like a table of contents for what we're going to see in the next uh, several chapters going up through chapter 19 when Christ comes. And chronologically, it's kind of interesting, uh, as you remember, these chapters, specifically 10 through 15, are what we call parenthetical chapters. They're chapters that describe individuals, it describes events. That are that are coming, and that are, you know that are coming yet, and and so we have to remember that. And um, it's interesting too, as we look at chapter fourteen, we're going to understand very quickly as we go through it, if you've read ahead at all, that chapters fifteen and sixteen actually occur before chapter 14. And you may be wondering, what are you talking about? Let, let me just give you one example. Look at verse 8 here in Revelation chapter 14. You notice that it speaks about Babylon being destroyed. But that doesn't actually happen until the seventh bowl judgment, which we haven't gotten to yet. And that, uh, that, that's the seventh bull judgment of, of uh, chapter 16. So that hasn't happened yet. So again, this is a table of contents of what's coming yet. And chapters 17 and 18 are really a fleshing out, if you will, a more detail concerning uh, the destruction of Babylon. Not only the city itself, but also the system, the po- the political, economic, and religious system False religious system that is being prepared as we speak. It's been preparing for quite a while, but it'll find its ultimate summation in that time. It's all going to be destroyed. So we know that this is just a, um, this is a table of contents. And in this chapter, we're going to see um, seven different visions, if you will. And uh, we'll look at those. The first vision is really verses 1 through 5. The second vision is verses 6 and 7. The third vision is verse 8. The fourth vision is verses 9 through 11. The fifth vision is verses 12 through 13. The sixth vision is verses 14 through 16. And finally, the seventh vision is verses 17 through 20. Let's look at the very first verse. It says, Then I looked. And behold, a lamb. Some, in most of the translations, the majority text says the lamb. So it says, Behold, the lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 having his father's name written on their foreheads. Now, this is kind of an interesting couple of verses because the first three verses I found very challenging, uh, but we have to look at it in reality we have to look at it, and I think it'll make some sense to us. Mount Zion is on earth. Mount Zion is not in heaven. Mount Zion is on earth. And this 144,000, notice, they're standing on the earth with the lamb. Um, and they, the, the 144,000 at this time, remember, have been sealed through to go through the great tribulation period. So they are not dead. They are physically on the earth, and they are there at Mount Zion. And in fact, many of the verses... There are many verses in the Bible that speak of Mount Zion, and out of the 150 Psalms, there are 30, and we're not going to look at all 30 of those, but there's there's 30 of them that speak of Zion in the Messianic millennial sense, meaning that it's speaking of Zion in the millennium when Jesus is present in that time. And let's, let's look at the one. You don't have to go there, but I'm going to read it to you. The first one is Psalm 2, verses 1 through 6. And I think when you see this, you'll understand very clearly that this psalm is messianic in its origin, or in its intent, and also it's prophetic of Christ coming to the earth, setting up his millennial kingdom. And what does it say? It says, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth, they set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And anointed there is Mashiach, Messiah. That's literally what it means. Against the Lord, against Jehovah, and against his Messiah is really literally what it means. Saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces, cast their cords from us. Notice, he who sits in the heaven shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision, and then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Notice what he says in verse 6. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. Regardless of what the earth does, regardless of what the governments do, ultimately Christ is going to sit on a throne in Jerusalem on this earth. He's going to set, and he's going to rule over the entire world. For a thousand years. In Psalm 46. I love the psalmist gives us this glimpse of the the millennial reign. He says there is a river. Psalm 46 verse 4. There is a river whose stream shall make glad the city of God. The city of God is the one that we're referring to that is coming yet in the future. The city of God. The holy place of the tabernacle of the most high. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her just at the break of dawn. The nations raged. The kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice and the earth melted. And so it's speaking about that future time that is ahead of us. In Psalm 48, it says something similar too. It says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, in his holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, literally beautiful in height, The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. And it's interesting, too, that the Temple Mount right now, if you go to Israel, you'll notice that um, the Temple Mount is here, and the Mount of Olives is over on the east side of it, and it's a little higher than it. It's a little higher. When you're actually on the Mount of Olives, you're looking down on the Temple Mount. But the Bible says here that beautiful for elevation, beautiful for height. And then um, in Zechariah, let's just read this. In verses 3 and 4, what happens yet in the future at the end of the great tribulation period when Jesus comes? What does it say? He's going to set his foot on the Mount of Olives. It's going to cleave in two. In Zechariah 14, verse 3, Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from the east to the west, making a large valley. Half of the mountains shall remove toward the north and the south and the east and the west. It's going to create like an epicenter. And believe me, uh, in Isaiah also it says this, The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, this is Isaiah chapter 2. Now it came to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains, shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow into it. And so this earthquake that's going to happen, and also Jesus coming down, is going to make all those mountains, it's going to change the geography of the land, all of a sudden, The Mount of Olives, which rises above the Temple Mount right now, is going to be changed. And all of a sudden, Zion, Mount Zion, where the Temple Mount is, that's going to be lifted up. And remember the gates? Lift up your heads, O ye gates. Those gates that are down and the King of Glory will come in. Those gates will be exposed. There's a lot more to that. But it is going to change the landscape of that area. When Jesus returns, but it speaks of a messianic time. These psalms uh, of a time yet future prophetically. And notice in verse one two, it says that the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion with them, one hundred and forty four thousand. These one hundred and forty four thousand are gathered in Jerusalem, and perhaps this is going to be the bait that is going to draw the Antichrist down from the north to come down to destroy Jerusalem. We know that the Antichrist is going to have a federation of armies. And these 144,000, perhaps, this is a conjecture, but I, I think it's very possible, that while they're there in Jerusalem, the Antichrist is going to know that they are there, and his hatred of them and the Jews, all the redeemed of, 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 of the Lord, he is going to be so angry at them, he is going to come down through the, that valley, at the valley, after the valley of Armageddon, he's going to come down, and he's going to just try to destroy, and he's going to be somewhat um, successful And destroying a majority of the city. And perhaps these 144,000 are like the bait. The bait in the water. And he sees them and he comes after them. In Zechariah chapter 14... It says that behold the day of the Lord is coming and your spoil will be divided in your midst for I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, speaking of Jerusalem, and the house is rifled and the women ravished. Half of the city will go into captivity but the remnant of, of the people shall not be cut off from the city. And so th- this is going to happen yet future to us. And uh, for the Jews in that time, and perhaps those 144,000, again, will just be the bait for the Antichrist. But the first time we hear of these 144,000, we looked at that in Revelation chapter 7. You remember that they were, they were sealed, 12,000 of each of the 12 tribes were sealed and protected to go through the Great Tribulation period. They will certainly be evangelical. They will be sharing the truth of Christ to not only their countrymen, their fellow Jews, but also to all around in the world. And the the Antichrist at that time, this political leader, will seek to destroy them. Everything he can, he wants to destroy them. And do you find that there is a plot in the world to destroy truth? Right now, isn't there a plot to destroy truth? It's going to get a lot worse it's going to get a lot worse but notice these have their father's name written on their foreheads and I think this is interesting because what did we just get uh, what did we just finish reading last week revelation 13 and what was revelation 13 especially the last seven or eight verses What is it was it talking about the mark of the beast of people taking a mark in their their hand or in their forehead, signifying their allegiance to the beast. And without it, they're not going to be able to buy or sell. And without that mark, you're going to be hunted. And you're going to be killed. And yet, what a contrast now. God is setting up here now at chapter 14, immediately after 13, saying these are going to be marked as well. But they are going to be marked by me, and they will be mine. They will be mine Notice in Revelation 7, and in verse 3, it says, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And that's exactly what happened with those 144,000. You can read Ezekiel chapter 9, verses 3 through 6. It's a very interesting uh, passage of Scripture as Ezekiel was ministering to the captives in Babylon as he was led captive in Babylon. Remember, Uh, when they were taken captive in Babylon around 606 B.C., they were in Babylon for about 20 years before Jerusalem in 586 was finally destroyed. So while he was still in Babylon prophesying to those captives still there, he was talking about this destruction of the temple and the things that were going to happen. And he mentions in Ezekiel 9, verse 3, notice the similarity of something in the Old Testament that is coming yet in the future to us. Notice Ezekiel 9, verse 3. Now the glory of the God of Israel, and this is a vision that God had given to Ezekiel. The glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub where it had been to the threshold of the temple. And he called to the man clothed with linen who had the writer's inkhorn at his side. And the Lord said to him, go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over the, all the abominations that are done within it. To the others, he said in my hearing, go after them throughout the city and kill them. In other words, those who don't have the mark. Do you see the difference? The Antichrist puts a mark on you, but you will ultimately be destroyed. But when God puts a mark on you, you are preserved. And that's exactly what is happening here. He says, To the others, he said in my hearing, go after them throughout the city and kill. Do not let your eyes spare, nor have any pity. And and, and this is hard, okay? This is a hard verse. Utterly slay old and young men, maidens and little children and women, but do not come near anyone on whom is the mark and begin at my sanctuary. Do you think God is serious about sin? He says, Judgment must first begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us... What's going to happen to those outside of Christ? That's why it's so important for us to be serious about our faith, to be serious about what the Bible says, to be serious about sin. May we not take it lightly and just kind of dismiss it. If you're like me, it's very easy for me to dismiss my own sin, but I don't like other people's sin. I look at somebody else's sin, it could be the same as mine, but why is it that I hate that more than I hate my own? Maybe because I see my reflection. Maybe I see my reflection, I'm like, I really hate that. And I know God hates that. And the Lord's going, well, can you see your reflection in the mirror? Oh. Oh. Wait a minute, the Bible's supposed to be about me getting information so that I can point my finger at other people. And God's saying, oh no, it starts with you. It starts with us. Then, we share it with others. But first, let us be wounded. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. And there's no one greater than a friend than Jesus. He's more than a friend, actually. He loves you and I so much. He loves us so much to tell us the truth. He won't lie to us. If somebody lies to you, they don't love you. If somebody's manipulating you, they don't love you. Jesus does neither. He gives you the choice, and you come to him of your own free volition. Of your own free will, you come to him. It can be no other way. It can be no other way. And we, too, are sealed. Just as those 144,000 are going to be sealed in their foreheads, you and I, if you're a child of God, if you're a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, you, too, have been sealed. What does it tell us in Second Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21? Now, he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God, notice, who has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as an earnest, as a guarantee. It's a down payment because he's coming back to get what he paid for. He's coming back again. He's placed the down payment in us, and it's just a moment, of, it won't be much longer. And he's going to say, Now I'm going to redeem the whole thing. That's when we are redeemed. Our body is redeemed. That's why in Revelation, or I'm sorry, in 1 Corinthians 15 and, and 1 Thessalonians 4 13 through 18, it talks about what happens at the rapture of the church. Our bodies are made incorruptible. If the rapture were to occur right now and all of us would receive a body instantly, it would be brand new. This old, I don't know what happens to this old tent. I don't know if it just falls down and something new is created or God just, he can transform what's here and make it something beautiful. And praise God for that. but notice we're sealed folks we're sealed the, the greek word is phragizō and it means a stamp it's a, a private mark it's a signet it's a seal that god places on on you and that's irrevocable and once that seal is placed on you it doesn't get taken away it cost someone their life in the old days when somebody would a king would take a letter and he would take that wax and that 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 candle and he would burn the wax on the, on the envelope or on the letter and he would seal it and he'd stamp it with a signet ring. The penalty of death was to anyone who opened that other than the recipient of that letter. And that's, that's the idea behind this. Only God can give you the seal and nobody else can touch it. That's why you have an assurance of salvation. Are you still struggling with sin? Of course we are. We all struggle with things. Don't be discouraged by that. You're human. You're human. But you've been redeemed, and God wants to conform you to his image. It's the process of sanctification. It takes time, and I am not very patient in that process. I want the end result now because I'm American. (laughs) I want it my way right away. As I sip on my vanilla shake from Burger King, I want it my way right away. But it doesn't work that way. Between now and then is a host of struggles and trials and tribulations, wrestlings, cryings, fits, hives, spittings, kickings. It's difficult. Great glory, don't get me wrong, great joy at the same time. It's a funny thing, isn't it? But it is. Is it easy? Is the Christian life easy? Is there anyone here who can say the Christian life, "Ah, that's a piece of cake. Once I got saved, I was kicking back. (laughs) Huh. I don't know what Bible you're reading from. Yes, there is. There's great joy. There's great peace. But I tell you what, though, there is a battle. And if you don't sense that battle, you've got to ask yourself the question, am I really one of his? Because there is a battle. There's a battle for your soul. Even though the devil, the devil can't take your soul, he can mess with you, and he can, he can play games with your head, and he can, make your wit- he, can he can try to tarnish your, your witness he can try to take your life if God will allow him but he can't take away your soul. He can't take away where you're going. There's nobody who can do that. Didn't God didn't Jesus say that? Don't fear him who can, you know, who can, you know, just kill you. Fear one who has the ability not only to take your life but to also send your soul to hell. So he's got the authority over those things. No one else. But you are sealed in Ephesians chapter 1 Verse 13, it says, "In whom also you trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and whom also, having believed, notice, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, again, who is the guarantee or the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. That redemption of the purchased possession comes at the rapture of the church. The seal, the promise is in us now, the Spirit of God. And at the rapture, God says, Now I'm going to take what's mine Completely, bodily. And I'm looking forward to that, are you? In Ephesians 4 verse 30 it says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. You know those bottles when you you drink a Coke or something like that or a bottled water, you take it and you redeem it for 10 cents? You're that bottle. You got something in you right now. But there's coming a time when you're going to, the chips are going to be cashed in and God's going to take you. He's going to give you a new body. And the seal, I heard it talk like this. Uh, the seal is like an engagement ring. It's a promise. When, guys, when you give your fiancé a ring, it's a promise. I give my life and my heart to you right now. And this is a promise that I want to marry you. I want to marry you. And Jesus has betrothed us unto himself, and he will return for us just as he said he would. In John 14, what did it say? Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, you might also be. That's what we're talking about. It's a promise. It's a promise. He's coming. And we've already looked at First Thessalonians 4, we've, we've seen that before, but I want to skip ahead to Revelation 22, in the new heavens and the new earth, okay, we're, we're looking way forward to the very, very end, after this heaven and earth has been dissolved and a new heavens and a new earth, new Jerusalem, what does it say for those of us who are in that new Jerusalem? The blessed, all of us, the church. It says, there shall be no more curse. This is Revelation 22, verse 3. There shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. And notice, they shall see his face, and his name shall be what? On their foreheads. On their foreheads. Even in the new heavens, and the new earth, in the new Jerusalem, we will have the stamp of God on us. I love that. I love the fact that I belong to Christ. Are you excited about belonging to Christ? It is the greatest thing. I'm so glad that I belong to him. I used to belong to the devil. I used to belong to many things. But ultimately, if I wasn't in, if I didn't belong to God, I belonged to the devil. And boy, was he a hard taskmaster. Was he a slave driver? Always showing me the things that looked really good tantalizing me with the the things that glittered, and the things that tasted good, and that looked good, and boy, they were for a few seconds. You know, it's sort of like a Big Mac. Can I just be honest? Guys, you know what I'm talking about. Ladies, you're like, no, I'll I'll take carrots and celery sticks. But guys, the Big Mac, when you open it up, especially on television, when you see it, and it's all puffy, and it's it's really, I don't know what they do. Anyway, it looks much better than what it actually is when you get it, but... Why, when you look at it, the tear comes out of your eye and you start to eat it. And everything is great. And then after the last bite, you're thinking, what did I do? And the older you get, the quicker that phrase comes. Why did I do that? I'm killing myself. But a stamp, you're going to belong to him. We belong to him right now. Do you belong to him? If you don't belong to Jesus, make that commitment today. Make the commitment today because of his great love for you. He's got such a great plan ahead of us. It is so bright, so glorious, so beautiful, so wonderful that words can't even describe it. They can't describe what awaits us. So much glory, so much wonder. It's going to be amazing. Honestly, there's nothing I want more. There's nothing In John's day, soldiers were branded by their commanders and slaves were branded by their masters. Even today in Texas, I love Texas. I love Texas. (laughs) Makes me want to put on some boots, put on some jeans with some holes in the knees, put on my plaid shirt, my hat with my little toothpick, got a piece of chunk of beef jerky right there in my cheek. I'm looking after the cattle. I'm looking after the Angus, this young one's running out there. And what do I do? As a, as a cattle owner, I brand them. That's my mark of ownership. They're stamped. If they get lost and they go over to, you know, someone else's land, that neighbor comes to me and he says, hey, I found, uh, I found one of your cows in my yard. Well, How do you know it's mine? Well, he's got, he's got the stamp. He belongs to you. That's what we are. And I love the fact that nothing can take us out of God's hand. In John chapter 10, verse 27, it says, Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. And they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, if God, if God the Father gives something to Jesus, is there anybody bold enough, is there anybody strong enough to take it out of the hand of Christ? There's nobody. There's nobody. There's no king of the hill big enough. The powers that be are ordered by God. He gives power on loan. He is all-powerful. There's no one who can touch him. And if you're in his hand, oh, what a wonderful security. What assurance we have of salvation. See, that's something that the church doesn't show a whole lot. We don't, you know, some churches teach the assurance of salvation, but it's something that is so wonderful to know, and to know it more than just intellectually, but to know it in your heart at some point, to know that you're assur- your salvation is it's, it's assured. <clears throat> It's not something you're going to lose. Are you going to mess up? Yes. Have some messed up more than others? Yes. Are they going to heaven? Yes. But the question is, are you born again? God doesn't make a mistake. Do you think the day that he put his spirit in you, do you think he didn't know that five years from then, ten years from then, twenty years from then, that you were going to do something really bad? And was he wringing his hands going, <laughs> i got to take it back. I can't believe he did I can't, I didn't. I didn't know he would do that. Otherwise, I wouldn't have done this. No. He knew very well what was going to happen. He's already seen it. But does the blood of Christ cover that sin? And do you go on, Christian? Do you stand up? Uh, a man who is, you know, if you've fallen seven times, a righteous man gets back up and he keeps going. Is that your experience? Or is somebody telling you that once you mess up, oh, God's through with you? You're done. You belong to the devil. That stamp just faded off. That stamp just faded off your forehead. Now you've got the mark of the beast. There are people in churches who do cruel things like that. They treat people like that. Should never treat anybody. Even an unbeliever, we should never treat like that. You love them, then tell them the truth. We don't treat each other that way. Never treat each other that way. But these 144,000, they're preserved from the wrath of God. Notice verse 2 And I heard a voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters, and like the voice of a loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. Notice they sang, as it were, a new song before the throne of God, before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. Now let me ask you the question. There seems to be a problem here. Do you see it? It sounds like the, this word they here in verse 3. Who is that they in, in, in the very beginning of verse 3? Who is it referring to? Is it referring to the 144,000? Or is it referring to the harpists that are playing their harps in heaven? The 144,000 are still on the earth, folks. And it says that this loud voice came from heaven, and then I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps, and they sang as it were a new song before what? The throne, and before the four living creatures and the elders. Where are they? Are they on earth, or are they in heaven? They're in heaven, right? They're in heaven. So these harpists playing their harps, they will sing a song that only... The 144,000 on the earth are going to be able to sing. They're going to they're gonna know it, and they, they will learn that. We don't hear the lyrics of that song, but I imagine it's wonderful. Notice verse 4, these are the ones who are not defiled with women, for they are virgins. They are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These were redeemed from among men, being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. Now this is a, another difficult spot, especially when you're talking in a mixed crowd, because it says that they were not defiled with women. Well, does that mean that women somehow are the defiling kind? Just because you're a woman, does that mean you defile? No, it doesn't mean that at all. We know that in the, in the Bible it talks about um, false religion being uh, like a woman, like Jezebel, who uh, encouraged her followers to engage in fornication. We know that that same apostate religion is, is here on the earth now, it's happening, and also is going to be ultimately in its summation in the tribulation period. But does that mean that women are the ones who defile? No, it doesn't mean that at all. In fact, women are a blessing. Women are a blessing. In Genesis 2, what did God say to Adam? Or God say? He says, "It is good. Uh, it is not good. Excuse me, that man should be alone, and I will make him a helper comparable to him. There's no reason it, it, it doesn't put down women. In Hebrews 13 verse 14, even as a married couple, a man and a woman, Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. Adam and Eve. (laughs) Marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. God will judge. As a married man and woman, the marriage bed is undefiled. God made that for that reason. It's a good thing within the bonds of marriage. Outside of marriage, you're in trouble. It creates a lot of hardship. A lot of, it creates a lot of pain. Because God designed for a, a husband and a wife to come together physically and emotionally within the bonds of marriage because it's such a strong bond. And when you make that bond outside of marriage, you are committing adultery against your own soul, against the Lord and against whoever that person might be married to in the future. You've taken something from them that can never be gotten back. Do you understand? Why is it such a big deal? It's because of that. God's desire is to have one because it's a picture of Christ in the church. Marriage is a picture of Christ in the church. And Christ gave his life, guys. He gave his life for her. And ladies, the church, what are we are to do? We're to submit to our husband Jesus Christ. Even when he's wrong. Even when he's wrong. I love what it says in Proverbs. It says, Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of your roof. W- your wife of your roof? This is a hard thing to say that three times really quickly. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of your youth as a loving deer and a graceful doe. Let her breast satisfy you at all times and always be enraptured, literally intoxicated, with her love. That's the secret. Drink water of your own cisterns. Men and women, if you're married, let your wife, your husband, be the one that you go to for everything. Although it is possible that these 144,000 are physically virgins, it could be, probably is, could be, but certainly it 's speaking of their separation and purity unto God, they were separate unto God. they had nothing else in their life that would get in the way of it in fact, in um, uh, spiritually, they were submitted to Jesus, they were devoted to Him, unlike the prevailing Mood and attitude of the time that they're living in, because what does it say in Revelation fourteen verse eight? It tells us that another angel followed, saying, "Babylon has fallen, has fallen that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication." And this is speaking of not only the city itself, which could be Rome, by the way. Babylon may not be Babylon; it may actually be Rome. It's probably nothing else other than that. It's either Babylon or Rome, and we'll look at that when we get into chapter seventeen. I have uh, the more I'm looking at this the more i'm i'm believing that babylon speak spoken of in revelation is rome i can't get around it any other way because i I still don't see babylon even today it's not being built i mean uh, nebuchadnezzar tried to rebuild it and his life was snuffed out and everything stopped it's still a desert the ruins are still there barely seen but they're there but nothing's happening and the Bible pronounced judgment against Babylon, that it wouldn't be inhabited. So I have a funny feeling that John is using Babylon as a code word for Rome, and we'll look at that. That's just my hunch. That may, opinion may change as we go, but, um, you know, many people feel that way too. But are you separated? As these 144,000, are you separated unto Christ? Or are you still wallowing in your sin and living a lifestyle of sin? I would encourage you to to really let these men inspire you, men and women. Be separate to God. Be separate to God. What does it say in Revelation 18? And I heard, and, and again, we're going to be getting to this chapter in a, who knows how long, but it says, and I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people, come out of Babylon, come out of Rome, or this, this false religious system that's going to be set up in the last days. It's already very well formed now as it is, but God says, come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins and lest you receive of her plagues, because she will be destroyed. This false religious political economic system that signifies Babylon, or Rome, is going to be destroyed. It's going to be destroyed. And notice in verse 6, or I'm sorry, in verse 5, And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they were without fault before the throne of God. Without, without, <laughs> without fault before the throne of God. Notice, they weren't sinless, but they were without fault. Do you know the difference? Paul was faultless, as he said, you know, before, he went through, when he, made, when he sinned, he went through the sacrifices. He went through the prescribed things that would uh, put away that sin, so to speak. Does that make sense? It doesn't mean you're sinless. It just means that when you, when you blow it, you did the right thing, and, and you had the sacrifices and all those things, you covered it. But notice in verse 6, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach, to those who dwell on the earth. To those who dwell on the earth. Notice this word gospel. This is the only time this word is mentioned in the book of Revelation. It's right here. It's right here. This word preach actually means, it's the word evangelizo, which is where we get our word evangelization or evangelical. You know, you, you go to evangelize to talk to people about Jesus. You're preaching at them, to them, trying to convince them of their need for Christ. That's what an evangelist does. That's what this word means. And this is what this angel does. This is what the angel does. And notice the grace, notice the, the, the I forget what I call this, the, the wonderful uh, the grace, the loving kindness of God. I, I forget the actual title, I don't have it here with me. But notice the grace of God in this. Even in this dark period of seemingly hopeless wasteland there is hope still for those who are willing to turn from it willing to turn from it what does it say in second peter The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but he's long-suffering. He's patient toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Even here in the tribulation period, as we get closer to the end of it, God is still throwing out the bait and seeing who's going to bite. He's throwing out the spinner, seeing who's going to take it, right? What does it say in Ezekiel? I love this. As I live, says the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? And what does he say also in Galatians 1 verse 8? But even if we, Paul says to the Galatians, whether we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. And what is this angel preaching to the world at this horrible time in history preaching the everlasting gospel, one last shot, one last shot for them to get it, will they take it? What did Jesus say in Matthew 24? This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. Are you talking to people about Jesus? You know, it's so easy to get into a comfortable kind of thing where we just kind of... We have our routine, and there's no more any zeal. There's no more hunger, no more desire for the lost. And when a church loses that perspective of that there are lost people that need to be saved, folks, that's a really bad place for us to be. That means that something has happened to us. And it's not something that it's not something that, you know, God is going to condemn us for. But it breaks his heart. Because if my heart is not desiring to tell people about Christ, and if I, if I no longer want to do it, is it easy to witness to people, to tell people about Jesus? It's not easy, is it? How do you start up the conversation? Usually that's the hard thing. It's so nice when it happens just kind of naturally. You know, somebody comes up to you and says, hey, I want to receive Christ. Well, great. Let me pray for you, you know. But what if you're sitting in an office? I remember in 9-11. No, not, was it, yeah, it was 9-11. I, said, went to, I had an appointment, and I'm sitting there in the, in, the, in the waiting room, and I'll never forget this. Everyone is hurting. Everyone's still, it was pretty fresh after 9-11. I'm sitting there in that thing, and I could just see the depression, and everybody's just kind of like really dealing with it. And the Lord put on my heart, he says, why don't you stand up and speak? Stand up and start talking about me, the hope. And I sat there for five minutes negotiating. No, Lord, I don't want to do that. And he just kept urging me and urging me to do it. And so finally I'm like, you know what, I'm just going to do it. Take that step of faith. Are you worried about looking like a fool? I could care less. I stood up and I told everybody the good news you know and again don't don't applaud me but, but what I, the reason i bring that up is sometimes you can get into the place where you are just racked with fear and you know sometimes it's just good you just to break out of it just start speaking stand up and say folks i want to tell you about somebody who loves you more than anybody can possibly love you his name is jesus christ and that's how i started And i just started sharing with them and then i sat down after it was all over with i have no idea what happened it wasn't my i didn't have to worry about that but I want to encourage you to step out of that comfort zone. As this angel is going over and preaching the everlasting gospel in a very difficult time, you and I have the great opportunity now, and it's really easy, relatively, relatively easy. Break out of it. Step out of yourself. Say, God, here I go. Help me. And get up and do it. Do it. And you'll probably find, and this happens to me more than often, and again, I'm no great example, okay, I'm, I'm not. But I, but I will say this, the times that I have gotten out of myself and, 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 and just threw away the fear of man and did that, there was always people come up to me afterward and saying, thank you so much. There were some who dismissed it, but then there were people who come up and say, know, thank you so much, that's the best thing I've heard. And then I'd have Christians coming up to me especially and saying, you know what, I could never do that. As soon as you started speaking, I was scared to death for you. But I'm encouraged now because I can do that too. And I'm like, you better believe it. But how are they going to know unless we do it? So do it. Deal with the fear. And the more you do it, the easier it will get. Don't worry about what people think of you. You're not. You're probably not going to see them ever again. Have you thought of that? You're not going to see them probably ever again. Why, why does their opinion matter of you so much? Boy, the devil works hard, doesn't he? There have been times where I've been at, uh, at Wegmans. Now, uh, most of the time, I keep my mouth shut, honestly. I'm, I'm, I'm distracted thinking, but there are times when the Lord just, I'm sitting there with the teller, and she's running through the stuff, or it could be a young man. And the Lord would just say, just nudge me and just say, Rob, just share. Just share. Say something. And so I do. And it's not up to me. And I fumble over my words. Sometimes it feels a little awkward. But I just try to keep it simple. Keep it simple. Even if you just tell somebody that Jesus loves you, do you know that? He is the one, He died for my sin. And he died for years, too. Do you know if you just give your heart to him, you can have eternal life? If that's all you said, that's more than that person heard ever since they were, started that job. I guarantee it. I remember one time asking a lady, I said, uh, I said, this is kind of awkward. I says, but I need to share something with you. And I did. And then afterwards, I said, that's, you probably never heard that before. And she goes, no, I've been here for 15 years. Never heard anybody share that with me. And one day, my daughter, she was just, you've heard this story, and it's, it's a wonderful story. My daughter was just, uh, she was old enough not to be in the cart, but she was still in the cart. She was standing in the cart, I think. And there was an African-American woman at the cash register at Wegmans. And she, the woman was very busy. And I was out to lunch. I wasn't thinking about anything, right? But Ariana had saw me do this before at times. Not consistently, but at times. And she decides to take a shot at it. And so we're there in line, and she'll, she'll corroborate the story. It was wonderful. And she looked at the woman, and she looked up at her, and she said, Do you know what Jesus loves you? And she said it real tenderly like that. This African-American woman, the tears just started to flow. And she said, That's the best thing I've ever heard. And she goes, I am a Christian, but I've fallen back. And I am so glad to hear that news. Out of the mouth of babes. You know, isn't it wonderful? But see, we're going to end here. We didn't get where I wanted to go, but that's okay. But be encouraged. You know, as this angel's flying through the the heavens, how that's going to happen, I don't know. It says it's an angel. I'll just take it as an angel. How is he going to do that? How loud is his voice? Can he do it in one circulation of the globe? Does he even have to make a does he even have to go around the whole earth? Maybe he can speak at once and everyone can see him from the eye. I don't know how that will work, and it's the physics are up to God. But I think he's got a handle on it, don't you? He who made all things, created the law of gravity, who holds the earth up there, and you know, how many gazillions of tons is the, is the weight of the earth and yet it's just sitting out there have you thought about that? just kind of get away from yourself for a minute and think the earth is just sitting out there in space there's nothing underneath it Nothing. there's no string attached to the top I mean it's are you kidding me? and there are other things floating around too and they're not going to collide into us no, everything that's on its circuit God's got it all covered he's like okay I got the whole thing going it's good just the way it is. be encouraged tell people about Jesus tell them get out of yourself, get out of your comfort zone. The best thing you can do is say and just pray and tell them what God has done in your life. Say can I tell you something really quick? I, I was living in a living a life of horrible stuff and God got a hold of my life? Do you know he wants to get a hold of your life? Do you know he loves you? You you and I are the same. You know, we're we're, we're sinners. But for God so loved the world, he loved all of us, that he gave. He gave the greatest gift, Jesus. He became sin for us that we would not die eternally, but we have everlasting life. Something simple. You know, John 3.16 is a great place to start. And it's awkward, right? Because most people today are on the move. But guess what? That, ten, that, that teller at Wegmans has got at least three or four minutes while she's scanning that stuff. I'm yapping away. I don't do it all the time. I just do it when I'm led, you know. And, and sometimes, I'll be honest with you, God has put it on my heart and I've not done it. And who loses? Everyone. I lose because I chickened out. And they lose because they didn't hear the greatest thing that they could have heard all day, all week, all month, all year. And no one else is going to do it. No one else will probably do it. But you, Christian, you and me, open our mouths. Open our mouths, open our hearts. Lord, give us a hunger, give us a, a burden for the lost again. And give us wisdom about how to reach this area around us, all around this church. There's so many subdivisions and roads and houses. And last summer, we went and visited some of those. We'd love to do that again. Give us wisdom and understanding how to reach them, what to say, how to say it. What can we do to make it not watered down, but give us creativity Help us to show them that we really love them. We're not here to put a notch on our belt so we can have some kind of spiritual pride in what we've done. Believe me, there's been enough of that. There's a point when you get old enough in the Lord, you're like, you know what, I could care less about any of that. I just want to be real. I want to be genuine. I want to do what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm not doing it for the church. I'm not doing it for anybody. I'm doing it for him because they need to hear what I have taken into my heart and has changed my life. They need that too. They need it. And what a great time now. They need it more than ever because suicide and alcoholism and adultery and all this stuff is going through the roof. The statistics are going way through the roof more than COVID-19 is. Going right through the roof because of all the stuff. People are hurting. We got a great time right now. There's a harvest that is just white right now. This is probably the greatest evangelical time in our history. And if we miss it, if we miss it, that's going to be a hard thing to swallow, isn't it? God is not angry with you. But will you take the challenge this week? Hand out a Do something, you know. There's all kinds of stuff you can break the ice, you know. Think about it ahead of time and then pray and then just be led by the Spirit of God. But for heaven's sake, share your faith. Share it with your family. Share it with, and do it in love. Don't condemn. Amen? Let's stand. Father, we come before you, and uh, Lord, as we consider this chapter, really hadn't anticipated going here too much. But Lord, it's your business. Lord, we pray that, Lord, you would give us a greater fear of you, and not a fear that is afraid and scared in a sense, but a, a holy reverence, Lord, for you. Lord, that there'd be nothing that would keep us back from sharing. The truth of Jesus Christ, the fact that we have sinned against a holy God, and the fact that we do deserve to go to hell, but you have paid the price for us, Lord, help us to not, help us to always share those things, Lord, the good news, the gospel, the everlasting gospel. Lord, give us that favor. Give us that grace. Fill us with your spirit. Lord, baptize us by your spirit every single day, as often as you will, even when we are not aware of it, Lord. You do the work in us and help us just simply to open our mouth. Open our mouths, God. And Lord, before you open our mouth, open our hearts. Open my heart, God, that I would never shrink back again when you urge me to share something. Lord, help me not to dismiss it and just think, well, it's just my own voice in my head saying, do this. Lord, help me to step out in faith and just do it and notice that it was from you all along and I just second-guessed you, I, I doubted you. Lord, help us to do that. And Lord, help us not to be condemned. Your love for us is great, Lord. We're going to heaven we are going to heaven. If we are a believer in you, Lord, that's a done deal. But Lord, help us, because Lord, there's nothing truly greater than to share that truth with somebody, and they finally the lights come on. And Lord, how many times will we have to share it before the light does come on? Probably for every time we get a compliment or somebody says that was a blessing, I was so glad to hear it. Be How many times will we share that before there's finally a tear, Lord? Probably many, but Lord, help us to never, never shrink back. Help us to continue being a part of that great commission that you told us before you ascended on high. To go into all the world and make disciples baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Lord, give us that unction again and stir the church here and the church in this county, the church in this state, the church in this country, and the church in this world. Stir us again, Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.